I am uh, delighted, Vice-Chancellor, to be invited to deliver the Hayden Ellis Distinguished Lecture here in Cardiff, and of course in the presence of Anne, his widow, and their family. He worked, as you have said, for this university and served it in high office and created for himself a world reputation as a psychologist and distinguished academic. And it might, therefore, at first glance, seem strange that against that background, I had, should have been invited to speak about the most controversial issue of my lifetime, the decision to leave and sever our 45 years relationship with the European Union. But actually, it's not strange at all. No part of our society is more dismayed by this proposal than Britain's universities and academia. You may have noticed that the Prime Minister is undertaking a sales tour of the United Kingdom to sell her Brexit deal direct to the electorates. And uh, you were lucky enough to have the first pitch here in Wales yesterday. Today, within just 24 hours, the Chancellor of the Exchequer admits that we will be worse off in any circumstances outside the European Union. The Home Secretary delays the publication of the government's plans to curb immigration. And the government refuses to allow Parliament to see the Attorney General's advice to Cabinet about the legal implications of the deal. It has all the credibility of the salesman trying to sell a second-hand car with no tax stick, no logbook, no manual, and no insurance. <laughs> Incidentally, there is a simple way for the government to avoid the charge that it is hiding the Attorney General's advice. There is a precedent. This is how I circumnavigated the problem in the early 1980s. The full advice full documentary background, it could be shown to a group of privy councillors representative of the widely differing opinions in the House, and they would be asked to confirm that the summary was fully reflective of the original report. I used a similar process by allowing a select committee to see the security classified papers concerning the sinking of the Belgrano. There were no leaks, and the government survived a critical debate on the floor of the House. But back to the sales campaign. The Prime Minister claims to have delivered a Brexit in the national interest, a Brexit that gives us control over our borders, and a Brexit that restores control of our agriculture. And she has made much of British national self-interest. Well, that is her proper responsibility. Two years ago, in the referendum campaign, she argued the same cause, but then its fulfillment required us to remain inside the European Union. Her speech in April of 2016 was thoughtful, responsible, persuasive. I agreed with every word of it. British national interest was better served within than without. 
Now, you can't have it both ways. So what has changed? Well, it certainly cannot be the future economic prospects of our country. Within the EU, before the referendum, we were the fastest growing economy amongst the 28 members. We are now virtually the slowest. We have seen a serious devaluation of our currency and a relentless stream of government, international and national reports showing that outside the European Union, our economy will continue to grow at rates well below our normal achievement. Every serious international body, the IMF, the OECD, the Institute of Fiscal Studies, the National Institute of Economics and Social Research have forecast that we will be poorer without the EU. And domestic forecasts reflect the same picture, including the Bank of England, the Office of Budget Responsibility, and the Treasury itself. The country will have less wealth, individuals will have lower incomes, the government will receive less tax revenue, public expenditure will be squeezed. The National Institute of Economic and Social Research spelt it out this week. By 2030, by the end of the first decade outside the EU, this would have the following consequences. The UK's gross domestic product would fall by 3.9% or 100 billion pounds every year. GDP per head would fall by 3% a year, amounting to an average cost per person a year of 1,090 pounds at today's prices. Total trade between the EU and the UK would fall by 46%. Foreign direct investment would fall by 21%. Labor productivity would fall by 1.3%. Tax revenues would fall by 1.5 to 2%, the equivalent of 18 to 23 billion pounds less to spend on public services at today's prices. And the Chancellor himself, in the figures that he has produced today, confirms this general position. We will be worse off outside the European Union. The Prime Minister points to the so-called dividend of £394 million per week for the National Health Service. And this, frankly, is a clear deception. Every penny of it is being borrowed and not paid for from tax revenues. Second, it is coincidental to the payment of £39 billion severance bill to pay for our accumulated liabilities to the European Union. The Prime Minister claims we will take control of our borders. She was Home Secretary in the six years of the two Cameron governments. The government policy was a public commitment to significant reduction in immigration. And no one disputes that Mrs May was a careful and competent occupant of this most accident-prone department. The facts are instructive. Over the past decade, in every quarter of every single year, net migration to the UK from outside the EU has exceeded net immigration by EU citizens, such that over that period, around 700,000 more non-EU citizens have settled here than EU 
citizens. So why were no controls introduced? If the government wants to persuade, uh, to prevent Australians, Indians, and the rest from coming here, it was perfectly free so to do. Europe had no say in the matter at all. They were our borders, under our law, under our ministers. And there was limited implementation of controls because the government knows of the value that we as an economy gain from the immigration upon which our economy depends. And they're still coming in numbers that make the government's own targets unattainable. I believe the government is wrong to keep its plans secret. It could only be that they fear that revelation of the details of what they're planning will reveal further arguments against Brexit itself. Now, Vice Chancellor, would I hope expect me to share a particular loyalty to Wales. A local television program some years ago traced my family roots back to the industrial 18th century, to the iron, coal, and steel industries and the significance of the South Welsh ports. I am proud to be a patron of the Morriston Orpheus Choir, who sang at my daughter's wedding, and I defyingly admit to tears in my eyes as I listen to their magical voices. I have been asked a thousand times if I was going to the match. <laughs> I wish I had last weekend. So I can understand the fierce patriotism that loyalty to Scotland, Ulster, and the Principality creates, although I remain firmly persuaded that the United Kingdom is richer for the participation of its members. I look back with pride to what we have achieved together. Particularly, I look with pride on the remarkable post-war achievement of establishing a union of 28 parliamentary democracies. The colonels in Greece, the fascists in Spain and Portugal, the 30% communist votes in France and Italy, all gone, all now committed to the rule of law which, in which the free citizen is central. The NATO alliance has kept the European peace for 70 years. In the event that NATO was called to arms, there would be an American supreme commander. But what if American opinion were to change? How few people remember Churchill's ominous words, very well, alone. It took three years for America to enter the First World War and two years for America to enter the Second World War, not of its own volition, even after Pearl Harbor, but because Hitler made the almost unbelievable mistake of declaring war on the United States. President Roosevelt was re-elected president in 1940 on the clearest commitments not to enter the war. Today, America is changing. Its geopolitical interests are focused increasingly on the East. Not unreasonably, they expect their allies to do more for themselves. And any strategic assessments for this country must therefore include what-ifs 
however uncomfortable they may be. The Europeans are responding to a new real politic. In our absence, particularly France and Germany, will dominate this process, taking every political and industrial advantage as they do. And in their position, we would do the same. I know. I negotiated the largest trans-European defence deal of all time to create the Eurofighter Typhoon. Its replacement and future generations of Airbus, so important to Schotten in Wales, to BAE, to Rolls-Royce and their myriad suppliers, will be much harder for the UK to participate in. For aerospace, read also pharmaceuticals, whose regulator is leaving London for The Hague, life sciences, R&D, infrastructure, information-based industries, in fact, any industries, where issues of scale, affordability, and technological need require countries to work in partnership and to share the costs. Post-Brexit, Britain will be outside the tent. In this context, I read the history books about the Act of Union with Scotland, the conquest of Wales, the Wars of the Roses between Yorkshire and Lancashire, and even the times when England was divided into ten kingdoms, the names of which few can now remember. Men and women died with passion for those causes. The arguments they heard then are echoed in the rhetoric of today. So I close the history books and look ahead. I watch Brexit seep its toxic poison into the coherence of the Union. The DUP in Northern Ireland have to be bought off to save a minority Tory government that surrendered its majority. The Scots demand similar treatment to that built into the Brexit deal to save the Good Friday Agreement. Are the Welsh expected to sit quiet on the touchlines? It is a delusion to suggest that if Parliament were to ratify the latest deal in two weeks' time, that an unprecedented harmony will emerge, passions subside, and a new common purpose sweep the country. The reality of the Brexit deal is that it is a deal built of straw with no clay, generalizations and no substance. The Prime Minister claims we're regaining control over agricultural policy. The days of the common agricultural policy are coming to an end. The UK government will be free to introduce change. Farmers in Wales, a significant component of the Welsh economy, should be alarmed. The single payment is to go. For the UK, that offers a saving of some £3 billion. So why should farmers be alarmed? The fact is that no one has any idea what will take its place. Anyone with the first knowledge of politics can see that there are serious bidders for that money. First, a bit of history. The CAP was a deal after the war by Germany, anxious to penetrate the French and other European markets for its industrial goods. It was prepared to pay France, who had a very different problem. Large parts of France's landmass do not lend themselves to economically productive agriculture. 
And France wanted a solution to maintain the large population managing to earn a living in the countryside and thus ease the pressure on the towns to which they would otherwise move. Britain wanted no part in this, but was a force to accept it later in order to secure accession in 1973. Back now to the modern dilemma for our agriculture. What will happen to the three billion pounds which is guaranteed only to 2022? And what will happen to the rural communities which it does so much to sustain? Step forward, the Treasury. This is the opportunity for which they have waited for 50 years. They will be enthusiastic supporters for the end of the single payment and welcome the vagueness of the language describing alternatives. Next in line will be the food-producing countries looking for access to our markets for their products grown in climates with which Welsh agriculture cannot compete. Now, the Department of Trade will want deals, and the easy deals will be with those countries' food importance in exchange for our goods and services. There will be consumers who welcome the cheaper food, providing devaluation does not absorb such opportunity. But Welsh farmers could, however, be third in the queue and nowhere near the front. But, it will be argued, the government has indicated that there will be new environmental schemes, not unfamiliar to the environmental arrangements for good stewardship that already exist. I caution farmers to beware. Under present arrangements, farmers have a simple calculation. So much an acre, cash in the bank. The proposed alternative, if in as much as there is any certainty about it, is very different. It has all the trappings of a bureaucratic dreamscape. Objectives, targets, measurements, forms, outputs, inspections, and public access to boot. All subject to the whim of successive secretaries of state and their revolving cohorts of experts and advisors. It's quite easy, politically, to point to the large subsidies for big landowners, enjoying escalating van land values and underpinning rent revenues. They can certainly expect the Treasury to take a size to their income. But much of Welsh agriculture is in the hands of small farmers, often tenants, with no capital asset backing. They may well come to look back at the common agricultural policy with growing nostalgia. Mrs. May rightly put Brexiteers in charge of the negotiations. Boris Johnson, David Davis, and Liam Fox had the full resource of the civil service at their disposal. And yet, in the context of our future relationship, they have delivered a range of generalizations with the characteristics of motherhood and apple pie, but the precision of wobbling jelly. <laughs> of course, this avoidance of detail suits the Brexit case. The government is determined to implement the departure deal and leave the European Union 
before the public get access to the chill of a real-world Brexit. How crude of President Trump to blow the delusions apart within hours of reading the text. The government has no one but itself to blame for this absence of detail. It now asks us to believe that the flesh can be put on the bone by the end of 2020, when all the evidence is that international trade deals is that they take years, not months. But even then, occasionally, you get a glimpse. And from the glimpse, you can see what lies ahead. The detail, when it does emerge, can reveal a bigger picture. Boris Johnson went to the DUP conference last weekend to secure their hostility to the Brexit deal and hence undermine their support for the government. As in his way, he couldn't resist a joke, a sideswipe at Euromania for regulation that has, as he said, forced us to adopt regulations controlling the noise of lawn lawnmowers. He got his Pavlovian laugh. He should have provoked a more indignant response. Setting ourselves free from nitpicking interference with the European Union is a popular bit. But consider the consequences. Most of us live in suburban houses with small gardens, surrounded by neighbors upon whose common sense and decency we depend to enjoy quiet enjoyment. Does Brexit mean that we will go back to the Sunday morning in the summer sun when that quiet enjoyment is shattered by an uncaring neighbor and his noisy lawnmowers? A trivial example, I'm the first to concede, but it is symptomatic of the facile onslaught on regulation and the implied bonfire waiting for Brexit to light the touch paper. There are people who talk of freedom, who elevate the rights of individuals to do as they please above the common good. They fail to realize that regulation is the division between the law of the jungle and the civilized state. Sadly, but undeniably, there are always the tiny minority who put their selfish personal instincts or wishes above any common good. And that is why the rule of law is the essence of our enjoyment of a safe, healthy, effective, law-based society. And if a right-wing government were to pursue the agenda of wholesale deregulation, it would be the surest way to secure the defeat of that government. The greatest ally for opponents of that bonfire would be found in the news columns of the newspapers whose opinions and comment columns would have been at the sharp end of creating the demand for the bonfire in the first place. Our commitment to the Alliance of Europe is a simple judgment of national self-interest. I bow to no one in my devotion to my country I yield to no one in my pride of what we were, what we are, and what I want us to be. But you can't balance that and divorce it from an understanding of the meaning of power in the modern and future world. You cannot walk blindfolded into this future with no compass of past events 
and no slide rule of economic reality. My pride in our country demands our presence where power is not so much a symbol of national rhetoric, but rather has behind it the economic and political resource to make a difference. We can all list the threats that face our country in the century ahead. It is very difficult to list threats that face this nation that are not shared by our European colleagues. It is even harder to list threats of any scale where we can resist such threats more effectively on our own than in partnership with our European colleagues. The fact is, empty words don't feed hungry throats. The future position, influence, and prosperity of our country now lies with members of Parliament. It is the most momentous decision they will ever have to take, and I hope and pray they will rise to the challenge. The British people were deceived about the consequences of leaving the European Union. A younger generation feel betrayed by an older generation who, in the way of things, will not be around to live with the consequences. The best outcome now, available for the majority of MPs who deplore the emerging consequences, is to put the decision back to the British people. There should be a second referendum. Open it to the floor, please. We have a, a question. Gentleman on the corner there. Lord Heseltine, um, question about the, the impact of current affairs on the Conservative Party. I'm a former member of the party. I resigned um, in January of the year because of the transformation from a restrained, patriotic, liberal, and economically and socially liberal party into blue kip. Do you think that um, the referendum has turned a running but manageable sore in the party into a fatal wound? And if it, has, and if it isn't fatal, um, how on earth does the Conservative Party cure itself? The Conservative Party is the most successful democratic force in the history of democracy because it understands in its gut that in order to achieve results, you have to achieve power. And you can't get yourself elected if you are divided, if you therefore lack the credibility. So in the end, the Conservatives will do what they always do. They will regroup and recover. That is my personal view. How they get there <laughs> If there were to be an election which they lost, that would be a very quick way, because they would then have a government they disliked, and they would unite against it. And the generation would go on, and within a reasonably short period of time, Brexit is going to be a forgotten issue, as the young generation come to power. But there isn't any short, easy solution, in my view, to your question. There is deep divides, and if any form of Brexit is implemented, the Conservatives will be blamed, and that will usually mean some electoral consequence. 
But in the end, people say to me, why don't you start a new party? Why don't you join a new grouping? Why don't you do this, that, and the other? There's that <laughs> chilling remark of Disraeli, damn your principles, stick to your party. Uh, I'm someone actually that's gone from Remain to Leave since the referendum, and I'm sure that there are others like me around. So if there is a second referendum and Leave does win again, will you respect that result? Uh, or do you feel that they'll still be campaigning afterwards? No, I, think, I think that is a good question. I think that if there were to be a second referendum and uh, Leave were to win, then I think that there would have to be acceptance that that was the people had known the facts, the decision had been ratified. That doesn't mean to say it would be permanent, but it would certainly be short-term accepted. Yes. Of course, it's not going to happen. Let me make that <laughs> Lord Heseltine, it's a question about the the a possible second referendum even if it goes ahead what questions would be asked and second uh, there is one party to the whole story which is the European Union it's not only Britain deciding it's the European Union allowing Britain to decide and a ruling has been uh, a case has been put to the European Court of Justice about whether Britain is allowed to uh, unilaterally revoke article, uh, the notification of Article 50? Yes. Well, I, I, my own view, again, this question and answer session could provide a similar response from me on many occasions because we are looking at a virtually unpredictable set of circumstances. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the next 10 days or so, and certainly not in the next two to three months. So anything is conjecture, and in every case there is unquantifiable, unknowable options. But on the question of um, um, a, a second referendum, if that were to become the agenda, uh, or indeed any change of leadership in the Conservative Party, my view is that the Europeans would provide whatever time was necessary in order for Britain to sort itself out. We have to realize that from their point of view, and you've always got to put yourself in the position of the, your opponent to understand the, what's going on. They hate Brexit. There, there's, no, there's no joy over there. To them, it is, it is an unraveling of a dream, a political dream that is not an economic dream, it's a political dream that uh, they've worked at for the last um, 70 years. And um, so if, we, if they can see Britain genuinely wanting to ch change its mind, they will provide the time. So the, all the issue about this, uh, this Article 50 and such a time scale and all, that is just not real politics. They will do what has to be done to make it possible for us to adjust. Um, so that, that's the, 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 the first question. The second one you asked was about the nature of the, the question. And again, I have to say, in, <laughs> at the moment it's difficult to see where the initiative is going to come from, because the government is not, this government is not going to go for a second referendum. Um, the Labour Party, in my view, will come round to that, uh, but they want to have a general election, so they will want to try and bring the government down 
before they go to a second referendum. They won't bring the government down because the Conservatives are not going to vote for a general election, and without the whole Conservative vote, you won't bring the government down. So the, 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 the Labour Party needs to go through that process of failing to get the general election. Then I think they'll go for a second referendum. Now, uh, how do they get that through the House of Commons, whether it's by amendments from the House of Lords, whether it's an initiative within the majority of the members of the House of Commons, but not the government itself, that again is part of the unpredictability. But what has to be a question which allows the British people to stay in the European Union. Whether you have a, two or three questions in addition to that and eliminate them, it gets more complicated. But these things are so it's impossible to predict. What I don't believe is that we will leave without a deal. I think that the good sense of the House of Commons will not let that happen, and the good sense of the Europeans will be very worried about it happening because they, our economies are so interwoven that it would be just as damaging for parts of them as it would be for us. Hi. Who do you think will be the next Tory leader, and who do you think it should be? Yeah. I, 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 I can't answer that question. Uh, you know, I, I, you can't. One, I've been, I'm not there. I, don't, I, I, I left the House of Commons in 2001, and that may sound like a cop-out answer, but I don't know the people. You know, I know some of them, but the bulk of them I don't know. And I'm therefore not part of the gossip, I'm not in the tea rooms, I'm not, you know, and all that. Um, so I, I don't know, but I have said, and I believe this, and it, it, that there's not much point in changing the singer unless you change the song. And um, that's quite difficult to see how that's going to happen. So, um, you know, I, I, this is a hopeless answer. But, <laughs> but, it, but it's, it's the real world. And, and, of course, it is Theresa May's greatest strength, because it's precisely that no one can... Uh, um, answer this question that holds back the challenges because the, all the people who might challenge her are not confident that they can win. So they, they're biding their time and don't have any illusions. That's what they're doing. They're not sitting there saying, oh, it's all wonderful and let's calm down. They're all working out how to make a breakthrough and go for it. Um, but they haven't, none of them yet can see victory. So keep, keep her there until we can win. That's her strength, but I, if she loses the vote in 10 days' time, it's very difficult to see how that happens. Gentleman in front of me. Lord Heseltine, you say you are in favour of a second referendum. Can you see a path to this happening? Yes, I can see a path to it happening, but it's, it's a path surrounded in mist, I'd be the first to say it. Uh, it's not easy, but that, to me, if the, voted, uh, if, the, if the Brexit deal is voted down, the, what the government is saying, uh, loud and clear, that means no deal, chaos. I don't believe the House of Commons will let that happen. So there will be a coming together, and then you'll say to me, who? Um, and I can't answer that. Um, to, to produce a majority, to get either a new deal, I doubt if it can be done, 
or a second referendum. But there, I mean, the, the, the bulk of the House of Commons is a Remain majority. How you put that together, this is uncharted water. Gentleman, blue at the dark gentleman, and then the lady in front of him. Hello, can I ask a question? Because I'm over here, I'm on your... Oh, yeah, of course you can. Yes. Right, I think. <laughs> um, a quick question. Thank you for coming. Um, but I wanted to ask how much clout the House of Lords might have with your other colleagues in the House of Commons and whether you do have any clout with them and what it would be in percentage-wise. If you were in charge right now, what deal would you go for? So you would think it would be a rescue two, two package. Two questions. What power does the House of Lords have? It does not, in the end, have the power to resist or impose its will on the Commons. But what it can do is to put in front of the Commons options, which the government don't like, don't want, but they can't stop us. And in that sense, we have power. Because if the government is saying, well, it's not policy, we're not going to do it, we won't accept an amendment in the Commons and, and all that, we can put an amendment in front of the Commons, they can't stop us, and then the Commons votes on what we've, we've done. So that's... Um, that's um, uh, but we, we, in the end, if the Commons vote down our amendment, perhaps twice, we would give it. Now, on my proposal, well, I, I go back to why I think we lost the referendum in, in 2016. I think it composed two things. First, the crash of 2008 had meant that for um, um, eight years, living standards had been frozen, by and large. Very, very long time for people to have frozen living standards in real terms. So what do people do in those circumstances? They want change. We need change. The most powerful argument in politics against the background of economic failure. There are only two arguments in any general election. Time for change, because we're fed up. Don't let the other bugger ruin it, because because we're doing well for you and your living standards are increasing. Translate that gross simplification into the Brexit situation. Eight years of frozen living standards, time for a change. The enemy? Well, what about the bureaucrats of Brussels, the foreigners imposing their will without our say? All those things. A wonderful, wonderful target dreamt up by the Conrad Blacks owning the Telegraph and Rupert Murdoch's owning the Sun and Daily Mail, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, and so uh, that, I think, is why the referendum went down. Immigration and economic frustration. Now, Europe didn't give David Cameron the sort of deal that might have enabled him to win. Because, principally, the freedom of movement principle was so enshrined in their concept, a point I made to you about the French agriculture and all that sort of thing. It's all part of the, the acquis, the European acquis. And um, so, but that's changed. 
The European issue has now got a totally different salience on the landmass of Europe to what it had in 2016. And you see it with Le Pen in France, you see the AFG in Germany, you see it in Holland and Hungary and Poland, um, uh, and other problems in Italy and Greece. But so if I was advising anyone on an initiative, I would say, go back to the Europeans. And this is the new basis of our discussions about immigration. Twofold. First of all, immigration is going to dominate the, the lives of everyone here. Why? This. We may think that life is tough and public expenditure squeezing us and there are potholes in the roads. If you're living in sub-Saharan Africa, we are living in a paradise of which they can hardly dream. And this isn't going away. Every day they pick it up, every day they look at it, every day they say, I want part of it. So they're going to keep coming. And we'll have to deal with that. And so my first approach to Europe would be, we have to defend the landmass of Europe, and Britain will play its full role in policing the borders. It will become a European responsibility. Secondly, we accept the principle of free movement, but we need to have regular arrangements, similar to the transitional arrangements when new countries join, limiting the pace at which this can take place. So there will be a ceiling at which any one country can expect to absorb people under the freedom of movement. And thirdly, I would say we need a Marshall Plan Marshall Plan was the huge aid program of the, war of the Americans to help rebuild war-torn Europe. We need a Marshall Plan from Europe to help kindle and develop and expand the economies from which the immigrants are coming. This would be imaginative, visionary, moral, and I think could command at least an audience in Europe. That's what I would do. And then, of course, but it would mean that Britain would stay within the European Union, our pound would recover, our living standards would increase, and prosperity would be much, we would go back to being one of the fastest growing economies in Europe. So that, that helps with the frozen living standards. Uh, now, just a minute, I promised two people up there. Uh, thank you. Um, I started off the way I campaigned for leave, I wore the T-shirt. I remember in Newport, when Newport declared for leave, how excited we were that our patriots are back, we're taking it. But I've realized in the two years that patriots don't let their country fail and don't let their country be worse off. And what you've seen is that defense of this country, regardless of who is in government, Labour or Conservative, is getting worse and worse as you go on. I'm a midshipman in the Royal Navy Reserve. I've seen it getting worse. And I've seen that a good alliance with Europe, especially in the European Union, which now I support Remain, is very, very important to our national security. So it doesn't matter if we're independent in our fields of glory, as it's called, or we're in the European Union. It's important that we have a good relationship with the European Union. So do you see Britain as weaker by 2030, 2050, as being out of the European Union, or do you see a status quo or even better off by remaining in the European Union? Well, I, I think that um, my view is predictable, that if we leave the European Union, your generation will watch 
conference after conference after conference about the big European issues, tax evasion, climate change, drug runners, whatever it may be. And Britain, well, perhaps they'll let us sit in the corridor outside the meeting. And then perhaps they'll let us send a paper in for them to consider. Uh, and maybe they'll tell us what decisions they're going to make before they make them so we can put our views in. Is that the Britain that you believe in? Not the Britain I believe in. I want to be where the decisions are being taken. Now, let us have no illusions. We're not going to win every argument. Nobody wins every argument. We do better being in the decision-making process, fighting our corner, and reckoning that the chances are we will win most of the arguments, which is what we have done. And it, is, it, it sounds so frightening, really, to try and talk about the Europe of 70 years ago. Well, um, there may be one or two in this audience, but I listened to Neville Chamberlain announce the declaration of war on Germany. I was in Piccadilly Circus the night the Second World War ended, the, the, the war in, against Japan ended. And uh, I, I saw, for reasons which are very understandable, Britain stand apart from the overbearing determination of the Europeans, summed up in those simple words, it must never happen again. That's what it was about. It must never happen again. And if you think what that meant, it meant that virtually every generation went to die because of issues which are lost in the mist of history, almost luck, some of them, generation after generation, because we had no mechanism of talk. Talk is boring, unexciting, time-consuming, but it is better than sending every generation to die. And of course, it doesn't sound as though we've been anywhere near that position today. But if you look at the Balkans and that, what went on there, not no long time ago, those were the sort of circumstances that a generation before did leave to the First World War, for example. So uh, it's a question of where you think British interest lies. And I see British influence at the top tables of decision-making. And I cannot live with the thought that we are going to be at the wrong end of what is called facts diplomacy, when 400 million of our neighbours tell us what we're going to do. Thank you. I, I guess what I'm looking for is some reassurance. To me, the idea of a second referendum is great, but I don't fundamentally believe the result will be different. I think in rooms like this, we, we discuss the arguments, but we're in an echo chamber. For most people, they're bored by this. There have been two years of sort of what people see as sniping. And fundamentally, there's been no positive case for Europe. Um, it's all an economic argument. And to most people, the overwhelming emotion is, I want this over with. And I I've sort of am struggling to see how a second referendum is going to be different when to most people, the answer is, get this over with, vote leave again. Um, and I just wonder how you see that differently. Well, look, you're right. There are an awful lot of people who say, oh, no, it's too much and it's too hard and why don't we just let it happen? Well, that's the way the extremists always win because they're always at it. They never adopt that attitude. They give up their spare time to plot and enjoy the, the machinery of, of protest and all of that. I've lived with it all my life and I know about it. And so for people like me, who I hope 
do not classify themselves as being on the extreme wing of politics, I say to myself, well, do I let them get away with it? Do I actually say, oh, well, you know, I'm 85 years of age, it's not my responsibility, I won't be here, let the thing go hang? Well, I don't, and I won't. And I don't hope you will. Or I, no, I hope you won't, getting it right away right. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lord Heseltan. Um, do you foresee that the original Brexit vote and the process over the past two years, irrespective of the outcome, will trigger a rethinking among the hierarchy in Europe about their policies and forever integration and forever some of the policies that brought about the vote in the first place? Uh, I think on immigration, the period, as I said, of the two years has been... Um, salutary for them, um, particularly probably for Angela Merkel in Germany. Um, so I think, yes, it has changed. But, but if you say to me, will the sort of ability to point to the foreigner and point to the civil servant and, and all that, that's, we, we all know it. We all do it, you know, let's be frank. And uh, so I don't think that will change. Human nature looks from its own small vantage point at the, at the most susceptible targets. And uh, I'm not going to indulge in Welsh politics about which I know very little, but I suspect that that is conducted very much on the same sort of basis here as it is in England and indeed across the world. Uh, human beings fight the sort of their animal instincts in, in, uh, in the pursuit of their wishes. Yes. Thank you. Um, I suppose my question is quite a simple one. What can we, as citizens of Europe, and I feel like this room, we all feel that we are citizens of Europe, do to um, undo the bad that is happening in society? How do we act in a way that can um, contribute to this desire for a second referendum, which I fully support? We march on London, I join Cardiff for Europe, I write to my MP on a daily basis, but what more can we, as citizens of Europe, do to um, overcome the political anarchy that's, which you've discussed today, that's taking over? Yeah. Well, uh, I think you, 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 it's not a simple question because there's no simple answer to it. Um, you, you just listed all the things that you should be doing. But if I were to point to the 300 other people in the room, I wonder whether they're doing it. Gentlemen here, third row. Hi, uh, thank you for coming. Um, I'm not a citizen of Britain. I'm not a citizen of EU. I want to worry, but I sort of cannot relate enough. Why should I worry? So how do you think Brexit affects the rest of the world, the non-EU world, non-British world? Well, I, I, I think they're bored by us. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but... Uh, I was in Germany a week ago and uh, talking to serious business people. And I said, come on, what do you think? He said, moved on, you know, we're, we're bored. We've, we've got our own problems. I was talking to um, a, a, a very well-connected American businessman, big political connections. And he said, well, I guess that you're about ninth on the issues facing the United States at the moment. 
And, and you see Trump, I mean, you know, and I, I, my views on Trump are probably worse than yours. But, uh, <laughs> but, 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 you know, that is the real world. I mean, he looks at this thing and he says, this is good for the EU. Now, he's one of the people that the Liam Foxes of this world are going around saying, we're going to do a fantastic deal. Well, what a fantastic deal to Trump means, chlorinated chicken and genetically modified seeds and God knows what in the beef, uh, you know, and, and competition for the health service provision, all that sort of big American companies coming in. That, that's what the Americans want. Um, now, there may be something in it. There may be advantages to be gained, but it's certainly not immediately apparent it's what the British people want. Um, and it's certainly not what Europe wants. Lord Heseltine, um, thank you very much for coming. We are told there's to be a television debate between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn on the deal that's before uh, Parliament. Um, neither of these could be accused of being enthusiastic Remainers then or now. How do we ensure that the 48% are represented in any such debate? I have, I have only one quarrel with you. The 48% was 2016. If you want me to read out the latest polls in tomorrow's newspapers, <laughs> you'll find that we're now significantly ahead. Um, but, um, well, of course, it's simple, really. This really is a simple question. Why does Theresa May want to debate with Jeremy Corbyn? Because Jeremy Corbyn is sitting on a fence. He's sitting on a fence because he's got a divided Labour Party which he is holding the Brexit line against quite a lot of his supporters and against momentum and against the unions who are trying to move him off. And you can see that even John McDonald today talking about the referendum being more possible, just, you know. So uh, Jeremy's got a very difficult political problem in holding his party. So Theresa May has seized him as a soft target. If you then say, well, what about the Scots Nats? What about the uh, DUP? What about uh, the Lib Dems? Are they going to get a voice? Well, of course, she won't have that. Um, so it, it'll be a fixed debate if, if it takes place. Uh, and uh, I, 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 she's chosen her own territory. I don't, that's what you do if you've got any sense. And he's a soft target because he is divided, and what's he going to do in answering the questions? He'll have to use terrible generalizations, like, I'll do better, to which he'll say the Europeans have said they're not going to let you do better. And so she's chosen a target that she thinks she can win. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Hesseltine. Um, I'm looking at where we are today in a fairly divided society, and we we're forgetting how we started on this journey to this you know, with, with the first referendum, hopefully we have another opportunity. But in so many ways, it's symptomatic of a failure of our democratic system and the, the quality of our democratic system that some people would argue that um, there's a sickness in our democracy and is there an argument for electoral reform now? And there's no better example of how we've got to this point that reinforces the case for electoral reform in the UK. Well, it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, there ain't no majority in the House of Commons or anything like it that's going to change the present system. So, and, and I wouldn't vote for it. Um, I, I know the arguments, and they are quite seductive about this, how we are held to ransom by the two extremes of the Labour and the Conservative Party. 
and the center ground can't act. Um, my party usually manages to orientate itself to the center ground. That, that's why David Cameron won the election. It wasn't the Conservative Party who won that election. It was David Cameron. Um, so, um, uh, you know, it, this is, perhaps I've uh, been around too long in the present system uh, to think of changing it, but it's not going to change anyway. So. Uh, thank you very much for a superb speech. A uh, very simple question. How should history judge David Cameron? Well, I, I, I think probably will be quite harsh because in the end you have to win. And he lost. Um, I, I wish he'd not left the House of Commons. I think it, it would be a, 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 a remarkable position for him to be in now if he'd just simply been there and remained quiet. And I wish George Osborne hadn't gone for the same reasons. Both of them, were, in my view, were extremely good at their job and they were doing a very interesting uh, lot of domestic reforms, which I happen to believe in very strongly. Um, but I fear that um, if you lose, you pay the price. There was a question that came up before. I just want to go back on that a bit. About the, where did this Brexit business go wrong? And the, I've made a clear answer that it's uh, the, the 2008 crash. But actually, I think it started long before that. I think a fundamental issue, which is very controversial, how do we allow Conrad Black and Rupert Murdoch to own our newspapers? I mean, both of them had strong anti-European views. Both of them, to my certain knowledge, intervened in when, when I, for example, was standing for leader of the Conservative Party. Both of them rang the editors of their newspapers to tell them they were not to support me, although both of them wanted to. One of them did, actually, against Murdoch's phone call, but the other one didn't. Um, now, if you add to that the drip, drip, drip of poison, all about the foreigners, all about Brussels, and a complete parody of the way the Brussels works. You know, there were British civil servants, British commissioners, councils of ministers full of Brits, uh, I've been there, I know. That it's, it's cumbersome, it's bureaucratic, it's, it, it's like a local government. It's all, all those things I understand. But the idea that we're not there or people kick us around is preposterous. Um, but where I think, I mentioned the, the Murdoch and Black phenomenon, I think Margaret played a, um, a, a big role in creating the climate that has gone wrong. And I'll tell you how it happened. Margaret, she didn't like foreigners. I mean, let's be frank about it. <laughs> uh, but when she was faced with the issue about the single market, the single market, you will all know, was when in the uh, mid-'80s, Europe said, we're now going to take the next big step. There are whatever number there were then, 25, 24, something like that. Each of us has got our own statistics our own specifications, our own um, definitions, 27 different regimes governing the commercial world. So why don't we just do what America does, which is to have one set of standards and specifications for the whole economy? Simple for everybody, 
standard quality controls across the whole place and massively increased production lines which are, give you a competitive advantage. Simple, understandable. Marga's first reaction was no. <laughs> you know, more centralism, more Brussels, more foreigners, all that sort of stuff. But then people said, well, look, Margaret, that's, we're very brave, and it's terrific how you can see. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's wonderful to see you taking a great stand here. But, but the problem is they're going to do it. And it's like the common agricultural policy, which we didn't have anything to do with, you remember. And so they created the CAP when we weren't there. And they'll do exactly the same, but this time it will be every aspect of the commercial and industrial world. So do you think that's what you want Britain to come about, where we are told what the standards are going to be for the whole of the European market, 400 million of them. We may be able to hold our own position and not have them, but the market which your companies are penetrating on a massive scale, 45% of our trade, will be standards that the French and the Germans set. And Margaret said, I won't have it. And she was right. And so she sent Arthur Cofield to Brussels. And um, he did a magnificent job. He was a former cabinet minister, former accountant, former tax inspector. He was a really bright lad. And it's widely recognized he played a blinder. And British interests, British specifications, British self standard and all that had a massive input into the, the, six, the, 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 um, the 400 different decisions that were needed to implement a single market. 1986 signed, delivered. And then we had difficult economic situation. Company, the economy wasn't delivering. And first one, then two, then 10, then 30, then 50, regulations came before the House of Commons, implementing every one of those changes. Fast forward to the little shop where they're making some tiny specification of this, that, and the other. There were two of them, the husband and wife. They work all day. They're their own finance director. They're their own production manager. They're their own sales executive. Their own HR department. They have to do the tax forms. They have to do the VAT forms. They have to do all this. And by the end of the day, they're tired. And then, Brussels wishes you to fill in these following forms to tell us, you, how to conform with the new regulations. 400 of them in a space of a flashing eyelid. And instead of Margaret saying, look, I'm, I, I know, I, for, forgive me, but we have to go through this because it is the greatest interest of our manufacturing base. No, she joined the clamor. Bloody bureaucrats, foreigners, Brussels, tyranny, no freedom. And that's where the rot really began in the late 80s because you've got foreign changes as they saw it against the background of economic frustration. That's where the rot really started. Well, Lord Hasseltine, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've just about reached the point where we have to...